Well, I hope you have your hiking gear on and your oxygen tank and all that stuff because today we're going to the mountaintop, as they say. The last paragraph of Romans chapter 8, um, I call it the mountaintop because it's, it is the summit of the book, the conclusion of Paul's doctrine of salvation in the book of Romans. And, and this is where everything leads right to this paragraph. We've been climbing, as it were, a mountain of truth, adding more and more to our knowledge of God's great work of salvation. And now we're at the end. I know the book of Romans has eight more chapters, but Romans 9 through 11 is a defense of chapter 8. And chapters 12 through 16 are all application, which is typically Paul's style. He lays out all the truth, and then he applies all the truth. And so the doctrinal section, in terms of the grand theme, it brings us here to this place. And you know, this is one of those places in the Bible that is so perfect and so clear that I'm tempted to just read it and go home. I mean, that really is one of those kind of passages. But I'm supposed to explain it, and that's what they pay me for, <clears throat> so I'll do it anyway. Then you can either listen to some explanation or you can just let your own mind and heart soar. If you want to just read this yourself and go off with it, you can. Just feel free. But I'm going to tell you um, some, th some thoughts about it. He begins with a rhetorical question that serves as an introduction to this um, summary of truth. Verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how will he not also, with him, freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? Just as it is written, for thy sake we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. There's a lot of terms that we've discussed in the first eight chapters that resurface here in this summary. Many ideas and concepts gather here and are woven together to form a, a seamless blanket of unalterable security. And that's what the passage is about, security. We see grace in verse 32, the expression freely give is the verb form of the noun grace. In Greek it's charisotai and charis is the Greek word for grace. In verse 33 we see that the all-important word justify a form of the word righteous, how we are right with God, which is the big theme earlier on. In verse 34, we see the word intercede, which we talked about in verse 27 of chapter 8, where the Holy Spirit intercedes for us, and here Christ is interceding for us. In verses 35 and verse 37 and verse 39, we find the word love, a major emphasis here describing the reason that God freely gives us so much, because he loves us. 
We talked about the wonders of divine love in Romans chapter 5, where Paul told us that God demonstrated his own love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And here, Paul wants us to see how unshakable that divine love is and how powerful it is. There's one key word that is completely missing here that's really interesting if you think about its absence. You couldn't escape it in the earlier chapters. In fact, the word occurs in the theme verse of the book, chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, which is the theme of the book of Romans. The word is there. As soon as you get to the section on justification, beginning in chapter 3, verse 21, that word shows up again and again and again, all the way up to, uh, to the first verse of chapter 5, and it's the word faith. The righteousness of God comes to us by faith, Paul told us. Romans 3.28 says, A man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Chapter 4 is all about faith, and the faith of Abraham as a model and as an exemplar of our own faith. And of course, chapter 5 begins, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. But it is not mentioned anywhere in Romans chapter 8. Not even in our mountaintop summary here. Why not? Because I think if you read this, salvation is so clearly the work of God. That's what Paul is saying. Faith is an instrument of reception. But salvation itself is God's work. Faith is the means. And it's how we conduct our lives. But the focus here is on eternal security. And that is God's work from start to finish. Remember, this morning's text flows right out of the golden chain of salvation, which we talked about last week, verse 28. We know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. And whom he predestined, these he also called, and whom he called, these he also justified, and whom he justified, these he also glorified. Our safety, our being rescued by God, not only delivers us from our sin and sets us on the path whose end is glory, that is all God's work. It does all of that. He initiated it, he accomplishes it, and he directs all things to act in support of that. And his power guarantees it all the way to the end. And we, as actors, or, or even as believers, are left out because this isn't about us. It's about him. And it's only about us as he acts for us. In fact, that's where we appear in this great paragraph. For us. For us. For us. But the doer is always God. Verse 31, God is for us. Verse 32, he delivered up his son for us. Verse 34, Christ intercedes for us. Verse 37, but in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. There we are. In verse 37, conquerors but only through him who loved us. Whatever we attain is through him by his love. Well, there's a lot of points there. Let's try to capture the flow of Paul's thought. He asks a lot of questions because these are questions we need to ask ourselves. Questions tend to rivet your attention on important matters because, you know, when you slug it out in daily life, you kind of forget about the important things. And when you ask a question like that, it draws your attention to something that really matters. So his first question in verse 31 
He says, what then shall we say to these things? What things? Well, these things obviously includes what immediately preceded the golden chain, which we just read. Romans 8, 28, all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. I think they must include the other blessings listed in chapter 8 as well. No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, verse 1. The indwelling spirit, verse 11. Our adoption into God's family, verse 15. Our position as heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, verse 17. The redemption of our bodies, verse 23. The Spirit interceding for us, verses 26 and 27. What shall we say to these things? In fact, it's quite possible, since this is the conclusion of the whole book so far, how sinners can be right with God, that's the great theme, that the entire book is in view when he talks about these things. What shall we say to these things? All these things that we've discussed, justification, sanctification, glorification, adoption, calling, predestination, faith, grace, love. What conclusion can we draw? Just one. Verse 31, if God is for us, who is against us? And by that he means of what account are those that are against us. Exactly who is going to get in our way of everlasting joy in his presence? Who's going to stop him? In verse 32, Paul invites us to think even more about this. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? You know, there's a real danger in reading over this too quickly. He who did not spare his son, and I want you to stop and think about the relationship between the Father and the Son. You need to spend some time with that. Sometimes we get too distant from God's point of view when we think about the cross and the death of Christ. God the Father sent His Son on a mission to literally inhabit humanity, to become a human being, the incarnation, not just appear as a human being, to, to become a human being. He didn't just show up with this sort of human-like form. He was conceived and, and grew in a womb and went through the birth process and, and learned to grow. And God the Son, a person with whom God fellowships in all eternity, becomes a human being. Philippians chapter 2 says, He emptied himself, talking about Christ, taking the form of a bondservant. Well, with Christmas coming, it's a good time to talk about the Incarnation. Jesus Christ was God, but truly man. Indeed, to become a man, he had to empty himself. He limited himself. Jesus Christ on earth lived quite a bit like you and I do. Very much like us. You know, when he was on earth as a human being, having emptied himself, he wasn't thinking about Mars he wasn't thinking, uh, directing angelic forces to go do things in distant places or around the world. He wasn't keeping the universe in tune with whatever God does, being God. He was a human being. And that's where his mind was. He was a child. He had to learn how to walk and he had to learn how to talk. And he worked in his dad's business. And he did construction. He worked with his hands. He had lots of brothers and sisters. And at some point, when his dad passed away, he was responsible for his mother's needs. For 30 years, he lived like, life just like we do. 
but without sin. No miracles, no infinite knowledge. And at night he didn't steal back into heaven's glory while everyone was asleep and enjoy his divine majesty. He just slept on a pallet in a poor man's home. He lived in a town every day working, living in a, as a working class man and, and working a job. He worked, he ate simple food, he fulfilled his social obligations, he went to the synagogue, and in all those years he didn't pull rank. He never said, hey, uh, you know, I'm God, you better uh, do that over there, buddy. Talk to his brothers like that. Wouldn't it be great if you, you were God and your brothers were just people? You know? Never did that, never pulled rank. He didn't float through life like some sort of holy phantom or something. He had to make a living. He had to deal with family. and He had neighbors. He had to do business. And all the while, he was obedient to all that God ever required of a human being. He never sinned. He never hated. He never injured anyone. He never cheated. He never coveted anything or anyone. He never lusted in his heart. Love and honor and truth governed every thought and motive and action. That's what set him apart. He was profoundly spiritual, of course, failing in no obligations, but also seeing below the surface on all spiritual matters, so much so that when he was a young child, just 12 years old, he's having dialogues and confounding the greatest theologians of the day in the temple. He knew what counted, and he had a perfect trust in God the Father and an intimate prayer life. And he immersed himself in the Old Testament scriptures, which he understood, of course, better than anyone else in his day. And the Father was pleased. The Father delighted in him. Jesus was the first man ever to satisfy and delight in God's law and in God himself perfectly. And around 30 years of age, he embarked on this mission that he came for. The, the Messiah's work had to get done and prophecy needed to be fulfilled. And when the time was right, he went out and started collecting his disciples. But even before that, he came to where his cousin John, who was a prophet, was baptizing people, baptizing them as a sign of repentance, as, as a preparatory way to be ready for the Messiah because he was about to come. And Jesus came to John and to get baptized. But at first, John wouldn't have anything to do with it. Remember? John said, I have need to be baptized by you. And Matthew tells us that Jesus said, permit it at this time, for in this way it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. So John, being obedient, puts him under the water, and as he, come up, as he comes up out of the water, heaven itself cannot contain itself. Matthew tells us the heavens were opened and John saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove and coming upon him and behold, a voice out of the heavens saying, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. A Father's pleasure. Well, you know the story. For over three years, Jesus did God's good work every, everywhere he went. He, he healed bodies. He cast out demons. He awakened hearts to the goodness and the glory of God and the need for him. And finally, the climax of his mission was to die as the Passover lamb, the spotless lamb, the real one, the spotless lamb dying for the sin of the world. He came to do it, and he was willing to do it, but the thought 
when it came down to it, of bearing sin and bearing the curse of God, ripped his soul like nothing else could. And we're told in the scripture on the night of his betrayal, overwhelmed with what lie ahead, he took some of his disciples into a garden to pray and he said to them, he said, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and watch with me. And of course they fall asleep. But he's praying. It says he prayed so much the sweat was pouring off him like drops of blood and he said, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Couldn't some other way be found? Must I drink the cup of divine wrath? Endure your condemnation? And of course he prayed, yet not as I will, but as you will. And then he was arrested and savagely beaten and flogged and spit upon. And they ripped the beard out of his face and then he was nailed to a wooden cross. And if you're a parent, what if that was your child? And you could stop it, but you don't. To stop it would doom forever a lot of wicked people. Wicked people, but people that you love. And so you let him die willingly to win back to yourself creatures who hate you. And your son cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And you let him have silence as an answer. You don't answer him because wrath is on him now. And he feels what every sinner deserves. The weight of hell is on him. And it was all for you, the Bible says. He who did not spare his own son but delivered him up for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Dare you doubt God's love, knowing that? His plan for your good, his ordering of circumstances for your good, your ultimate glorification? Don't doubt. You know, the part that's hardest to believe, the, the greatest gift, it's already been given. Is it so hard to believe that God causes all things to work together for good to you when he's already given so much? That's what Paul's point is. If he can do that with his son, how can you doubt his love? And he did it publicly. And he confirmed it, not only with witnesses, but through resurrection. So there can be no doubt. Not one of these promises could God possibly fail to give you after giving you his own son. What about my sins? What about Satan reminding me of all my past, all that I've ever done? Well, verse 33 who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. That's intercession again. Verse 26, we mentioned a while ago, the Holy Spirit the third person of the Trinity groans from within us, verse 26 and 27 say, interceding, speaking on our behalf, praying for us according to God's holy will. But in verse 34, we find Jesus Christ interceding for us as well. He in heaven at the right hand of the Father, speaking to him on our behalf. Who will condemn us? I, I died for that person. 
Their sin is covered. I bore it. I bore the penalty. He died for us. He lives for us. He prays for us. Can you doubt his love even in the midst of trials knowing that that is true? You cannot be separated from the love of God if you are his. It is not possible. Isn't that good news? He did not spare his son and he will not let you go. Verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecutions or famine or nakedness or peril or sword, just as it is written, for thy sake we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Is that the good life? As the world understands it. But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. Christians having trouble? Yes. Distress? Yes. Persecution? Yes. Often. Famine? It happens. Nakedness? Poverty? Possibly. Peril? Yes. Sword? Many Christians have felt the bite of the sword of the world. Slaughter? Still goes on today around the world. But in all these things, even in these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. Overwhelmingly conquer. You know, there's conquering, and then there's overwhelmingly conquering. This is really an interesting word in Greek, huper nikomen. The main part of the word niko you're familiar with, you see it on shoes all the time with that slash mark. Nike. Nike is the Greek god of victory, and that word niko, they don't have a long I sound. Niko means conquer or victor. And when you put a huper on front of it, where we get our word hyper, it's like really strongly emphasized, a superlative. A lot of modern translation, translators would use the word super. Super conquerors. The King James says more than conquerors. What's the difference between being a conqueror and a super conqueror? Well, I guess it's a matter of degree, huh? The latter means complete, total, unquestioned victory. Someone has suggested that one who is more than a conqueror not only defeats the foe, but he causes the enemy to become a helper. And that makes sense. Because verse 37 says we overwhelmingly conquer through him. Because does he not cause our enemies to become our helpers? Does not God cause all things to work together for good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose? Romans 8.28 All things, even wicked things, are directed by God for the benefit of those who he has called. And the benefits, obviously, are not necessarily to be seen or understood in this life because we might have a life of persecution and famine and nakedness and peril and death. But they do produce what the New Testament calls an eternal weight of glory that lasts forever. Tragedy, even on an epic scale, will not destroy us because our hopes and our hearts are not here anyway. Where did Jesus say to put your treasure? In heaven. Is that pie-in-the-sky stuff to make you be a good little boy until you just die and get eaten by worms? 
Or is it really there? He died so you could really be there forever with him. And today, what we're doing now is we are ambassadors. And we will serve in whatever conditions the king assigns us to represent him and our country, which is heaven. And if we have to live in a world of squalor and danger, we'll do it. We'll be ambassadors for him. And if we please him by faithful service, so much greater will be our joy when he calls us home from our duty and we go back to his country. And there, where we really belong, we'll see our king and our father and he will embrace us and favor us with joys unspeakable simply because he loves us so much. That is more than conquering. That is super conquering. And that is victory. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the pinnacle of the mountaintop. Who can question and challenge what you've decided to do? And if by your grace and your mercy you've decided to favor us with divine love backed up with divine power, an unshakable chain of salvation where you predestine and call and justify and glorify according to your own wonderful will. Give us the confidence in your power and in your love to live for you in this world, always with our eye on that world where we're really going which is really our home. Our very hearts long for that place. We know it's there. And as Jesus conquered death, we know that in him we conquer death, overwhelmingly. We thank you for that. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.